Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And my co-host, you you couldn't fall off a rock and not hit something my co-host for today has been in the, in the past two years. I think there's something like in just 21 and 2022, there's somewhere around 10 credits. Okay, so coming up, you might see Raul Castillo in The Inspection. Maybe you'll see him in Miguel Wants to Fight. Maybe you'll see him in the FX series Class of 09. You could have seen him earlier this year in the heralded movie out of Sundance, Cha Cha Real Smooth. Or maybe you like Broadway. Maybe you like a off-Broadway show and you've seen him in American televisions. Maybe you were a fan of looking. Maybe you saw the kick-ass Jason Statham Guy Ritchie movie Wrath of Man earlier this year. I could go, I could go on, <laughs> but that would defeat the rest of the conversation. Raul, what else do the people need to know about you before we get started? Besides that, just like past few years of resume that I have given. Uh, they should know that I'm a Virgo, first and foremost. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you for today. having me. Excited. Absolutely. So what is, is the inspection the most immediate thing you have coming up of all of those things I listed in your impending credits? Absolutely. I have, I had a film called The Same Storm that debuted here in New York and LA at the Lamley in LA, the quad in here in New York. The Same Storm, That's right. Yes. It's a Peter Hedges film uh, that we shot in August of 2020, uh, all remotely. Um, and yeah, shot both of my scenes from home uh, on Zoom or FaceTime. I can't remember which mm -hmm. it was. Uh, and every actor worked from their own individual homes, and it was, um, it's a, you know, COVID-inspired film, so it's all meant to be remote. Uh, I have a great scene opposite Mary Louise Parker, who I'm a huge fan of. And, uh, oh, fantastic. Yeah, but the cast is, like, littered with tons of, like, amazing people. Sandra Oh and Judith Light, Elaine May, John Gallagher Jr., Corey Michael Smith, like, Ron Livingston, Rosemary DeWitt. Like, it's just, like, this stellar cast all across the board, and I'm, like, I feel proud. Okay. To be a part of that. So there's that. And then, yeah, the inspection, which comes out in theaters November 18th. And that is uh, A24's upcoming release. And that is about a a closeted soldier in the United States Army, correct? Yeah, I wouldn't say he's closeted. I just wouldn't say he he's comfortably out. It, the, the film okay. takes place in because uh, he's very much like uh, uh, very much embraces his queerness. Uh, but he he's this homeless, young homeless kid. It's based off. The director's life, uh, the director was a guy named Elegance Bratton. He was, you know, homeless for 10 years. He'd been kicked out of home for his, uh, for his sexuality. And he was kind of stuck in a place and he decided mm -hmm. to enlist in the Marines. And uh, so, and he, he served for eight years, in fact, uh, Elegance did in the era of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So our film takes place in 2005 and it's only about, it's, it's not autobiographical. It's based on true events. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, so it's very much a fictionalized account of his own experience, but it, it's about, uh, specifically about boot camp, mm -hmm. about this, this young recruits experience in boot camp and, and overcoming all odds and, uh, becoming a Marine. Yeah. Well, the character, the, the character that you have brought for us to discuss today, um, tell us a little bit about who that is and what movie we will be sort of diving into for our discussion. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm a gut-oriented person. I just trust my gut. And when the email came through about, about the podcast, it, it, it was like, it hit me immediately and I didn't want to overthink it um, and, and try to curate the answer too much. It can um, really stump people. So I think like, yeah. I think that's kind of like, well, I'm either going to sit and really ruminate on this or I've got to take it like no. a thunderclap. No, no. To me, I knew exactly what it was. And, uh, this, the summer 
before my freshman year of high school, I somehow wound up with a VHS copy of Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders. And I must have watched that every day that summer. Um, (laughs) You know, like we, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. There wasn't a lot lot to do in the summers. I stayed home a lot. And and, uh, specifically, Matt Dillon's character of Dallas Mm -hmm. is um, who really I connected with. But really all those characters, all the outsiders I connected Mm -hmm. with. But um, uh, that movie, I, I, you know, I didn't think about it a whole lot. I just liked watching it. Okay. Okay. I, I was fourteen years old, thirteen years old, like so. It wasn't. There wasn't a lot of. That's a great age to find it. the outsiders. You know what I mean? And and, and, yeah. and I, I I like looking back. That year, I was transitioning. I went to Catholic school until eighth grade, and I was transitioning to public school. And part of my journey in Catholic school, like I'm first generation American. Mm-hmm. My parents are from northern Mexico, and. They, you know, we were born in, in the U.S. and we were raised in, here in the, in the United States and uh, in a very much a bicultural upbringing. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a lot growing up, but my parents put a lot of emphasis in education. And so uh, they were nervous about raising kids in the, uh, on the American side because they didn't know what that looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. they were both generationally speaking from Mexico. And, and um, even though we were, we were in that part of the border... Because I grew up ten minutes from where my parents are from in Mexico. Oh, okay. And, and we we've been on that part of the border on both sides of my family for before there was that was a border. Just yeah. to give you an idea. And um, I think I've read you talk about how like it was very porous when you were yeah, growing up. Like you exactly. being able to go back and forth to where yep. your family was from was very easy for you. It was a part yeah. of your life. Yep. They they were nervous about us being raised on this side, and they put us into Catholic school and private school. They put all their money mm-hmm. into our education. Um, mm-hmm. and as you can imagine, there was like, like in a lot of private schools, there's like the, there's, there's the haves and the have nots, you know? And, and, uh, yeah. and, and for a long time, I wasn't really aware of it until you start to get to like the junior high age and all of a sudden young people start to, their individuality starts to come forward, you know? And, and mm-hmm. that's when I, funny enough, my sixth grade year is when I started to get into punk rock. Um, I was into, I was heavily into like rock and roll of the era, like, you know the, the the hair metal of, of the, the the times, and, and mm-hmm. my, my brother and I were starting to get into rock and roll, and uh, uh, Motley Crue and Poison, all Poison, that stuff. Yeah, 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 all that stuff was just spoke to us for some reason. And then I remember hearing the Ramones for the first time. I was watching National Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow, uh, what I, an I, aesthetic journey to go from CC Deville to Joey Ramone. <laughs> totally, completely. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> what, like, like, I remember it just like, it spoke to me and I didn't know why. And I don't know how I found, oh yeah, I must have gone to like the closing credits and found out that it was the Ramones. And like, mm-hmm. I'd heard of the Ramones, but I didn't really quite know who they are. I lived in a very small town. At when that Shazam time, was watching to the end of the credits to find out yeah. what song you had <laughs> just heard. Exactly. So, you know, I started, like, we we had very little access at that time. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't Amazon stuff. You couldn't, you know, it was like whatever, yeah. like our local little skate shop sold, they, they sold some tapes and uh, you know, we would share stuff with friends, tape, you know, uh, record stuff tape to tape. And mm-hmm. I started getting into punk rock. And that kind of really spoke to me because 
to be a punk rocker, you didn't have to have a lot. Your, mm-hmm. your worth wasn't the things that you owned. Yeah. Um, you know, Fugazi and the DC scene later, those bands, Bad Brains and Minor Threat, those started to speak to me a little bit later because it wasn't about material possessions. It was about, you know, what was up in your mind and heart. And like, mm-hmm. um, and so punk rock really became a, a very meaningful to me at that age, you know, 11, 12, 13. Mm-hmm. So that summer, I think when I saw The Outsiders, I, it just like, they, like I connected with those characters uh-huh. Um, uh, the so social much. culture is like emerging yeah. around you as middle schoolers like are starting yeah. to show their material well Ex- exactly exactly you can't win you know that don't you it doesn't matter if you whip us you'll still be where you were before at the bottom and we'll still be the lucky ones at the top with all the breaks it doesn't matter and greasers will still be greasers and socials will still be socials it doesn't matter and, and, and it certainly Pony Boy was like, of course, every young boy like connected with Pony Boy. But mm-hmm. to me, Dallas and Matt Dillon as Dallas mm-hmm. was so magnetic. Yeah. What's going on, Dale? What's up? We're early. What do you want to do? Nothing legal, man. Let's get out of here. So it's a it's a it's a it's a very multiple layered like I feel most seen maybe by Pony Boy in some ways because I do feel mm-hmm. golden you know I do feel yeah, like yeah 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 you know I I felt that that that, that Essie Hidden was so brilliant and she spoke so brilliantly to like that she was a young woman in Oklahoma and wrote so she could you know understood young boys like young, mm-hmm. you know so well like is truly remarkable. Um, and and certainly young boys of a, of a of a certain class and um, yeah, but Dallas was so charismatic and Matt mm-hmm. Dillon is so amazing. You know, he's so incredible in that movie. And uh, I don't know, I just wanted to be Dallas. And I, you know, <laughs> I, like I remember I had a picture of of Matt Dillon on my dresser. I'd found it in a magazine. I cut it out and put it on my dresser. And one you of my, and you and millions more. You and yeah, millions yeah, more. Yeah, totally. And I remember, my, I, I remember a, a girl cousin of mine, like from Mexico, coming into my room and like asking me if I was gay because I because I because I had a male actor on my dresser, but it hadn't even occurred to me. I was just like, no, I right. just, I mean, I had band posters everywhere as well. I yeah, just, like you're like he's just fucking cool, man. Yeah, he's just cool. I had a picture of Mila Jovovich too. She didn't say anything about that, like you know, like, <laughs> like, like dazzling spectrum. You know, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, I didn't know this then because I was just starting to get into acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that was literally my freshman year when I went. In, so my so my freshman year, I went into public school. Mm-hmm. And then, then I was in the wild and sort of in this you know new environment. And is that when you started finding theater and stuff? That's right. That's exactly it. That was the year. That okay. was that that following that summer. Mm-hmm. And I remember a friend of mine saying like he really wanted our drama teacher to do The Outsiders for the one act play. And I was like, I love that movie. Let's oh, do that cool. for the one act play. Well, they didn't end up doing it sadly because they wanted you oh. know they wanted a play with a balance of boys and girls. <laughs> sure. Okay. There was probably there was probably more girls auditioning for the the, the you know <laughs> yeah. the school. 
Oh yeah, place. we had a we actually had a pretty pr- pretty prevalent musical theater program in my um high school. Yeah, but it was still like even with the amount of participation that we got, it was kind of like if you were a boy and you auditioned, you were getting in that show. <laughs> totally. But there was going to be a lot of girls turned away at the door, exactly, just by exactly. comparison of volumes of who auditioned. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, that that story and those those that group of friends and who they are and who they are in this town and. Uh, I don't know. I connect. It wasn't. It wasn't an intellectual thing. It was just like. Yeah. I don't know. It just spoke to me, and I just watched it over and over again. It just comforted me, um, mm-hmm. in a way. Were that- you a Were you a vulnerable teen, or were you? Because I think an interesting thing that Dylan, like, he has the yes. most sort of like dramatic arc throughout the course of the movie. Oh my where, god! Like, you're so right. You meet him as a dickhead and a womanizer. And he like, everybody goes on their sort of journey, but he's the one who really becomes a different person over the course of it. And it seems like that hinges on his inability to or unwillingness to access his emotional vulnerability until the point where it just explodes out of him. Hey, you, you're not allowed here. I'm allowed anywhere I want. You're out of your mind. Why are you bother helping people, huh? Doesn't do any good. And so I wondered if you were the if you were the vulnerable Dylan in there, the vulnerable Dally, or if you were like the kind of tough holding up the holding up the outside Dally. Jordan, I don't want to cry on your podcast. I'm not going to cry on your podcast. <laughs> Raul, it happens a lot. So I, I welcome your honesty uh, and your candor, and I want to be here for you. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because I hadn't even thought about that. I was so focused on who he is at the front of the movie, who he is sure. with Cherry, and that I'd forgotten about him in that hospital bed. And and having that moment, you know, when he goes in and saves those kids. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I absolutely forgot about that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, think that's I, how, very... I think that's how Dali kind of endures. And, and even his yeah. outrage at the end, it kind of it feels so familiar in the context yes. of sort of like yes. the chauvinism that comes before it. But like yeah. he's so unable to reconcile how strongly he loved Johnny and has just lost his friend, Ralph Macchio's character that he like, like when, when pony boy gets home and he goes to his brother, when he goes to Patrick Swayze, he's like, uh, like Dally can't take it. Like, I, I don't know what he's going to do. And he's just, he's breaking things. He's stealing from people. He's crying. Yeah, like he yeah. doesn't know how to feel outwardly because he only can survive if he keeps it inside. Yeah. Yeah. That makes absolute sense. Told him about beating his socials. I don't know, he just died. Told me to stay gold. Hey, buddy. Dally's gone. He couldn't take it, he's gonna blow. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, I mean, that, his outrage. I mean, like, I, 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 I that's interesting. That, that's interesting because, because I was becoming a, really aware of, like, class at the time. Mm-hmm. And where I fit in in that structure, and and I think I did feel I think I think the thing that punk rock really allowed me to release was an outrage, and, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, and I I had nothing to be outraged about. I, w- I was <laughs> so, somewhat privileged compared to a lot of the kids that I grew up around, you know, and, and grew up with. Um, 
but I saw like you know material wealth and that that I didn't have, and I, I and I saw I saw in, more than that I saw injustices uh, mm-hmm. that I felt really frustrated by. I saw like I, I saw a, a society where people with money were valued and people without it weren't, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that story and and Dally's specifically. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I was reading, like, you know, I, we go through and we, we prep for these things and we read interviews. And, you know, I, I was I was reading one from, from back when The Looking film was about to come out. And you were talking about, like, having grown up, like, growing up on a border town and being a Mexican-American man. Like, there is the duality of being, like, you were talking about how there's always kind of a performance or of one or the other of self. Like, yeah. you're, either, you're either too Mexican in America to be an American or you're too American in Mexico to be a Mexican. That's right. And as I've talked so many times on the show about like the the coolest thing about getting to do this is watching people's character picks through the specific lens of who I'm going to be speaking to and like watching mm. Dallas the thing I kept focusing on about that character was his his seemingly being the most sort of rigid personality within the movie and sort of most like obnoxiously so at points but really like he seems to be the one doing the most most performance of self because he seems to be the one most uncomfortable with his interior life compared to his externality. Whereas Emilio Estevez's character, he's perfectly fucking fine just being an alcoholic <laughs> and sort of like joking his way through the day. Like Patrick Swayze, like they tell us in the movie, like your brother would be a soch if it wasn't for the rest of us. Like he hangs mm. around here and is a greaser mm. because of us, like because we're his family. Yeah, but yeah. Dally is the one sort of unable to reconcile the two halves of himself. And so I had to start watching the performance in terms of like what you were saying about a person identifying with this individual being a performance of two things and not necessarily being able to settle into one or the other. And I wanted to hear from you where you felt like you were at in terms of that, like, do you feel like at this point in your life an opportunity more coalesced or does that nature of performance stick with you throughout your entire life because it's just so conditioned and ingrained from like a day one instance? Yeah, like, uh, you know, I'm still, no matter how far I go in my career, whenever, like, I start a project, if I don't know anyone, it's still the first day of school for me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm a middle child, so I'm a second born. And uh, I think when you're the second born, sometimes you're used to your older sibling doing the talking for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so you so you get kind of, you're a little shyer. I'm by nature shy, even though I'm in, I know I'm an actor and, like, I have a very public. Uh, uh, I feel job, like I consistently uh, but, find actors to be more on the shy, more on the introversion side <laughs> of the spectrum than the extroversion one. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I was kind of, you know, when I was a kid, like if I felt comfortable in in the company I was in, I I was a total mm-hmm. clown. But then, and, and then I, you know, I, I I went to public school, and by my by the time I was knowing very mm-hmm. few kids, by the time I was a senior. I was voted most popular. <laughs> I was because I, I because I made friends in like different social right, circles. Right. Like I was I, I I made friends with everybody. I wasn't just like about mm-hmm. the elites or like you know. And um, so I, I'm not entirely shy. I, I could be a bit of a class mm-hmm. clown, but but uh, it, it um, uh, yeah. It, it, it uh, at times I I could be like when I'm in new environments. It can be kind of. Uh, the, I, you know, people are using the the term now imposter syndrome, and, uh, and 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 it and it resonates uh-huh. for me. You know, I totally understand that that because I've I've felt that throughout my life. So, but 
I've always been pretty good about the mm-hmm. work. If I can focus on the, if I, if I like the work, if I like the character I'm playing and the story mm-hmm. I'm telling, when I'm working, I'm not nervous okay. at all. But I think in some ways that I'm a, I'll always be like that kid. It's like the first day of school. <laughs> well, then I, I wonder with like a character, obviously like a, a degree of prominence came with playing Richie in Looking. Um, and what I, I, when you play a character like that, who like, he's kind of the most, he's around a bunch of these neurotic white gays in San Francisco. And he is, I lived in San Francisco for seven years. I know many of them. And I, you know, just playing a character so embodied and and sure in his identities as Richie, what do you take from characters like that when you get to live inside them for an extended period of time as TV affords you to do, where it, that is something, like you have that kind of first day of school mentality. Can characters that you play operate as these sort of instructive presences in your life? Like, almost like learning from a friend? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Richie is, like, way more self-assured than I am. <laughs> uh, like, I, I would never, I mean, certainly not now because I have a fiancé, but I would never, like, hit on a stranger on a train. Right, you know, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, flirt flirt with an, with a complete stranger in any scenario like that. <laughs> you know, like the way that... So he's... He's a lot more confident, I think, externally confident than I am. Um, mm-hmm. He's a lot more self-assured. He he um, he's better at standing up for himself than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I, yeah, there's a lot to learn from from him and some of the characters that I that I've gotten gotten to play. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back with a lot more Raul Castillo on the Outsiders. Then I'll have one quick thing before I go about. The beloved, widely acknowledged Thanksgiving classic, Adam's Family Values. So stick around for that. Manolo, guess what? Manolo, guess what? What, what, what? Dr. Game Show has made it to 100 episodes on Maximum Fun. Oh, that's true. I knew that. Well, to celebrate, we are releasing our entire Earwolf archives to Max Fun members. That's anyone who gives $5 or more monthly to support podcasts like Dr. Game Show. That's 63 episodes with in-studio comedian guests like Jason Manzoukas, Bowen Yang and Matt Rogers, Joe Para, Todd Berry and Janine Garofalo, Connor O'Malley, Chris Gethard, and more. Plus three bonus episodes that include two pilot episodes. Wow, two pilots must be good. Find the feed at MaximumFun.org slash BOCO B-O-C-O. Stands for bonus content. Mm-hmm. Presenting the new MaxFunStore.com We've got shirts for your torso, hats for your head, drinkware for your finest beverages, and so much more. Starring your favorite Max Fun shows with new and classic designs. Find the perfect gift for the podcast fan in your life. Heck, that could be you. We're not judging. Head to MaxFunStore.com now. That's MaxFunStore.com. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. Raul Castillo is starring alongside Jeremy Pope in the new movie, The Inspection. And that's just the latest of his many recent credits. Raul knew right away that he felt seen by 1983's The Outsiders, so our conversation today is coming through that lens. Let's get back to it. 
you are a playwright in addition to uh, in, in addition to a stage actor. Yeah, and I'm, a, I'm a recovering playwright. You are a recovering playwright, and that's very real. I mean, I think Patty Lupone like burned her actor's equity card yesterday. She like posted yeah. on Twitter. She was like, "That's it. I'm done." And I heard about that. I like I Patty Lupone only store out publicly. Like <laughs> you're Patty Lupone, and. And so I, you know, you know, feeling so connected to a character like Dallas, Matt Dillon's Dallas in in The Outsiders. And then in your work, you've very like publicly and vocally been a champion of like Latino, of Latinx playwriters and creatives and wanting to champion their work. And you yourself have a career that can now serve as a vehicle of representation and and feeling seen for other people. And I wanted to talk to you about what you might have felt like as the the lack thereof or perhaps like only like intermittently placed a more one-to-one representation that you saw or not like growing up in media being right on the border like maybe you were taking in like movies and art and tv from mexico where you were like i didn't need like your american bullshit stuff that wasn't serving me but like a big part of the conversation i like to have here on the show is like people grafting themselves onto imperfect images on the screen because they themselves don't necessarily have the one-to-one options and i wanted to in your career of being like, I am going to bring artists of my culture and background into the fore and champion this work. I wanted to hear about sort of the tension there. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, you know, when I was being introduced to theater, it was like, I was, it was the Neil Simons and the, and the, um, mm-hmm. you know, Tennessee Williams, of course, and like uh, mm-hmm. traditional white American playwrights that were in the you know in the zeitgeist at the time and that's what I was being exposed to and um when I was a sophomore in high school I I found a an old weathered copy of the New Yorkian Poets Cafe book of poetry mm-hmm. in my in my high school library and I discovered the poetry of a writer named Miguel Pinero mm-hmm. and uh he was a really interesting individual Miguel Pinero he um you know he had an interesting life he was a guy who had been in prison in and out of prison throughout life, he was a you know reco- he was a drug addict and and uh, you know petty thief and he 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 was also this really charismatic uh, poet and he was um, taking these writing he was he was up in uh, Sing Sing prison and he was doing mm-hmm. these uh, writing workshops that, uh, you know artists from the city were coming up and teaching inmates uh, you know uh, poetry and and drama mm-hmm. and. Uh, he wrote a play called Short Eyes, and I remember I, I read Short Eyes when I was in high school, and uh, it's a wild play. If you, if you haven't read it, they, they made a movie of it back in the in the seventies. It's a wild ass movie, and certainly so far from my own experience, my own life experience. But when I saw that blend of uh, spang, like he, you know, the Spanglish that that mm-hmm. that Miguel Pinedo worked with in his writing, I was I, I was blown away because I didn't know. Mm-hmm. That you could do that. I didn't. I had never read anything quite like it. So, you know. And then at the same time, around that time, I remember seeing uh, John Luizamo mm-hmm. in Carlito's Way, which that could have been another performance that I picked because, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, you know, that was. I remember watching him do that and being like, "Whoa!" Like, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd been hearing about him because he was doing these one man shows, and my brother, my brother's girlfriend at the time had cable, and they would show Mambo Mouth and. Spicorama, his one man shows they would show him on HBO, and we mm-hmm. we didn't have HBO. That was my, how my I was like introduced to John Leguizamo was his one man specials on HBO. 
Yeah, yeah. My, my brother's girlfriend, Tavitha, had, uh, her parents had, had cable. So he came home and he would tell me about the, these one-man shows and they sounded so great. And uh, when I saw him in Carlito's Way, uh, I remember being blown away. So there are, I, can, I can point to like those artists or those who, who, who sort of, I felt, you know, you know, even someone like Raul Julia, I mean, he had my name. Mm. And he was a, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he and he was like he was a Raúl. He was a, in Spanish. You would call them a tocayo. A tocayo is someone. It's a person you're named after. But anyone who has your name okay. can be a tocayo. Um, okay. And uh, you know, Raúl Julia was an absolute genius. I mean, we lost him way yeah. ahead of his time. I mean, I, I, you know, those, those, those things were important to me, and there, I could certainly pinpoint Latinx artists that that I came across. As writer, writers, actors, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then yeah, certainly stuff that was coming out of Mexico in the '90s and '80s. It was not the best time in Mexican cinema, but my parents always spoke about the golden age of Mexican cinema. This era in like the 50s, '40s, '50s, '60s, where all this wonderful filmmaking was going on, and hearing my parents' stories about the, that era and those movies and these greats like Maria Felix and. Dolores del Rio and Jorge Negrete and mm-hmm. just all these amazing actors and singers and like this great art that was created and hearing those stories. Last year, I, I'm going to do a little plug here, but last year I got to, uh, I got to work in Mexico for the first time. I worked in Mexico City. Okay. I shot a film, I shot a film with Gael Garcia Bernal, uh, called Cassandro that's written, written and directed by a guy named Roger Ross Williams, who's a documentarian, uh, for mm-hmm. Hulu. Uh, I think it will be coming out next year. But uh, um, we were shooting in these studios, and uh, Estudios Churubusco, they're called. And when I told my mom, I, I wasn't familiar, but when I told my mom I was mm-hmm. working in Estudios Churubusco, she like lit up. They're like these historical <laughs> studios from that from movies when she was a girl that she would, you know, watch. And I'm wow. working in those studios. And, you know, we come from like, <laughs> no one in my family acted. No one did any of this stuff. You know, we never imagined ourselves like being part of like that world so um it was I, I wish my dad was still around just so he can you know see, you know could have seen that because i know he would have he would have been <laughs> so enamored with that you know idea uh but but yeah it's it's um i think it's an interesting time because there's like you know even so even since the time that we did looking like uh-huh. conversation has gotten more interesting and more like complex yeah. and around diversity and around around representation and 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 I'm here for it. I'm I'm I'm, I'm you know I want it I want the conversation to continue. Well, and you, you, you just said you're a recovering playwright and you and I've, I've read a bit about you talking about how you you felt a sense of disillusionment within like the American institution of, of theater. And yeah. I wanted to hear from you where where to you is the most interesting conversation around what you can do with character. Is it film? Is it television? Do you feel like that is something that's available for you in stage? Um, I, I feel like it's available in all three mediums and mm-hmm. I'm becoming, and now with the body of experience that I have under my belt, mm-hmm. I I can be smarter about choosing the projects. Like now I have, you know, when you're starting out, you're sort of taking work wherever you can get it. Yeah. And as you, as you know, as you progress in your career, if you're fortunate enough to like, to build and, and to continue to build and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, uh, and, and now I can be more selective about, who I choose to collaborate with, mm-hmm. um, the projects that I sign on to, and 
You know, I've, I've had I've had heartbreaks in each of the mediums. Yeah, you know, in all, all three of those mediums. Yeah, the common and, thread of those mediums is heartbreak. <laughs> exactly, and then and then the flip side is is, is true. I've had the the most beautiful experiences mm-hmm. in all three of those mediums. American yeah. televisions that I just uh, closed on in a New York theater workshop was like that group of artists, that company of actors, that that team of creative people who put that thing together was like. It was an absolute like love fest. I hadn't done a play in eight years, so mm-hmm. it was great to go back t- to the theater. And you know, I've had my my heartbreaks in theater, and um, and write, writing is so personal that um, mm-hmm. and and acting is keeping me busy. So you know, I, I may write again one day. Like now, mm-hmm. I'm just like focusing on on the acting uh, uh, part of my life, but. but mm-hmm. um, but I think I've become a, a lot wiser about, you know, sort of picking who I align myself with, and who, mm-hmm. who I want to collaborate with and make art with at the end of the day. Well, and I, I, I was reading a, another interview with you, too, where you you talked how uh, talked about how like early on in, in like when you were getting started as an actor there, it, it sounds like there was a sort of feeling of sense like I didn't know that I would fit as an actor. Like I didn't know. I didn't feel like I was sort of like the image of what an actor was. I didn't know that if this was an option available to me. And I wondered if and when you had sort of crossed that threshold and now with like the volume of work you're doing and like you said, being in a position to be selective about who you can collaborate with. Do you feel like did you realize that you fit? Or did you realize that you needed to make a space where you would fit regardless and everyone would kind of have to deal with it? Um, it was interesting when, when they sent me the, the, you know, the email and I got the email about this podcast uh, because I've been thinking about a lot about the, the nature of being seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Thinking about it all the time. I totally relate. Uh, well, I've been, I've been think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it in terms of, of my acting, uh, specifically about my screen acting, but also my stage acting as well. But, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a middle child. So mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, uh, getting on stage initially was a way to be seen, you know, a way mm-hmm. to get attention, a way to like, uh, initially it was just because uh, I thought girls like actors and, you know, I could <laughs> yeah. be seen in that way. But ultimately, like then, then I started to enjoy embodying characters and bringing them to life, and people connecting to the work and being seen in that way. Yeah. So I was I was a theater kid for many years, and then after going to college and studying theater, I did my first short film, probably a year after college. But mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about this concept in the last couple of years. That I think the reason screen acting specifically that I had more success than I had in theater acting. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a fine theater actor. I think I, I, I can, I can, I can and will have opportunities to, to grow and continue to grow in the theater, I hope. But with screen acting, there was something about the camera mm. that I learned early on. Um, no one taught me this. I just kind of instinctually knew it, that the camera saw everything that I did I didn't have to fight for attention with the camera. That I, I I didn't have to emote. I just had to I just had to go through what the character was going through, and live truthfully in the given circumstances. And the camera would see it, and the camera became my friend mm-hmm. early on because the camera sees me, mm-hmm. and the camera loves me. And, <laughs> and and there's something kind of bizarre and disconnected about that, but it's truthful. I mean, it was like that's why I think like. I always 
I returned to, to even when I didn't think I could be an actor and even when I didn't think there were going to be opportunities for someone like me, mm-hmm. I loved doing it so much. And I, I loved when the work would connect with people and mm-hmm. specifically with screen acting, um, when you do things for the camera and it captures it and then people watch it and they connect with the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, there's something so special about that. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, there's... there's um, I don't know if I answered your question, but but that's, that's something that's something I've been thinking a lot about. But uh, um, well, I mean, you you yeah. spent I I feel like there is there is a symmetry to the fact that you like you spent a summer watching this movie that you discovered at fourteen years old with the Outsiders, and then the next year you go into public school, and that's when you start on your own investigating theater and performance. Like, yeah. in however, even if you weren't intellectualizing it at the time, whatever you were experiencing on there, like, it's clearly a movie that resonated with you to the point where you get this question about this podcast now and you're like, I know immediately my gut what this answer is. Like, it left that yeah. kind of lasting mark on you. And yeah. then you hit this threshold in your life where cultural schisms are emerging, you're in a different environment, and then yeah. you have these new options available to you and I have to believe there's a sort of sense memory of what you felt experiencing such a connection through art and through the camera yourself being on the other side of it. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. That's why that's why I love doing this show, because like these things really matter. Like to me, it's exciting yeah. how much they matter because it means keep doing it. It's hard, but keep doing it. It's imperfect, but keep doing it. Because you can be here decades later in your life and being like, man, The Outsiders, a 1983 movie by Francis Ford Coppola, that movie really (laughs) stuck with me. Absolutely. And 30 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting now that, like, because I think that movie, like, to me... I've always I, I I said this to my playwright for um, American televisions, and I and I and I felt this affinity with them because they have such a Victor Casar is is the name of the playwright. They have such an affinity for underdogs, mm-hmm. and uh, this the Outsiders is, is all about the underdogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think about the inspection, just to bring it you know full circle back to yeah. to to this film. Um, Ellis French, who's very geniusly played by the wonderful Jeremy Pope in our film in The Inspection, um, that character is the most, like, he's the, the embodiment of the underdog. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Inspection is kind of like, um, it, it, I've been thinking a lot about Rocky uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so how, how, how people kind of overcome odds. Um, um, but I've, I've, always, I've always connected to the underdog. I always, in any room that I'm in, if I have any bit of power I, I i hope i hope that i use that power to lift up any 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 underdog and i think that's what my character does mm-hmm. in the inspection and and that's something i connected with in that in that story specifically and 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 yeah it's interesting that the outsiders yeah i mean it, it was like it, it came to me immediately i didn't have to think about it you know and and <laughs> and and dally is like dally i was the character and and I, it's crazy that i that I didn't even think about his 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 emotional trajectory because that's ex- I mean I was just thinking of, of like the charismatic side of Matt Dillon and not like yeah. the, the the kind of pouring rage and heart that we see toward the end which is as soon as he started speaking to that I got emotional because I I was like I I wondered what that how that resonated for me at fourteen years old mm-hmm. you know without even really knowing it. 
and I gotta believe it was something in there because if you're gonna watch a movie every day, it's like it's gotta be working yeah. for you on kind of every level. <laughs> like, and you're having a sort of new day with it each time. Just like it totally. can just be the fucking best and be rad. We can also be like, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's like when you like. I feel like like when you have like a crush in your teen years, and you're like, I just think they're really cool. That's all. Like, I just. It's not that like I have to. Like, they're just really cool. I just want to hang out with them like all the time. It's like the time. there's a name also, for what also, you're feeling right now. Speaking of crushes, Diane Lane. Is that Diane Lane as as as, as Cherry? No, oh my god, Cherry Valance. I was watching oh the outside, like when I was watching it again. When I was watching the Outsiders again for this, I was like, shouts out to Diane Lane, who was just <laughs> cast over and over again at the beginning of her career as the like unattainable dream girl. It's like, oh hey, we need god. the archetype for a fantasy teen. <laughs> Like, let's I do was... Streets of Fire, Diane Lane, Popstar. Let's do The Outsiders, Cherry Valance, Rumblefish, anyone? Like, let's totally. keep making Diane Lane a fantasy. Oh and it God. worked every time. They were right Good. every time Diane Lane played a perfect girl. I was so in love with her. I was so in love with her. <laughs> <laughs> As was Dallas. As was Dallas. And... <laughs> then there's that, so that, like... there's that perfect teen moment in that where he's horrible to her and they have like yep. a scrape and the socias and the greases are coming together and she's like i hope i never see that guy again i'll probably fall in love with him and then she storms <laughs> off it was like oh cherry you will yes no yes. if i see you in school and i don't say hi please don't take it personal okay yeah i know really you're a nice boy and everything it's okay I hope I never see Dallas Winston again. If I do, I'd probably fall in love with him. Come on, baby. Don't touch me. <laughs> no! Yes, Don't let him have yes. a chance, Cherry! I, I was like, I have a chance with Diane Lane. This is, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> it's funny. So my, my parents are from a state called Tamaulipas, which is like the north, the northeasternmost state in the border on the Mexican side. And um, I sometimes semi-facetiously, semi-not, refer to Tamaulipas as, like, the Oklahoma of of, of Mexico because it's, mm-hmm. like, this kind of forgotten state. It's not, not that it's forgotten. It's just, like, overlooked a lot. And being from, from, being from the border, not necessarily from Texas specifically, but, like, from the border more specifically, mm-hmm. you often feel forgotten. Mm-hmm. You feel forgotten by the rest of the country. You feel forgotten by the rest of the state. Um, that, 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 that you, you don't feel like you belong in the conversation. And so it's like, it, no wonder the outsiders resonated for me as, as specifically as a border kid, like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it, I think that like with what you said about like the source material being written by a woman and then you have this Francis Ford Coppola adaptation and I think, and then Mm -hmm. to have, then that's like said in Oklahoma and here you are. It's it's hitting you as a Mexican-American kid growing up on the border, a place that kind of seems like it, like you're describing it, kind of sounds like a snow globe sort of with the world around it, but it's sort of encased on its own. And with people making like whatever presumptions they will make about what goes on in that little enclosed snow globe that they're not that they're not a part of. And I think it. I think it speaks so like the, this conversation paired with the movie itself, I think speaks so well to that like transmutable power of being able yeah. to identify yourself in a place and sort of the, the way 
that a storyteller with the proper amount of like tenderness and empathy can translate an experience that is not one-to-one their own and a demonstration of like how fully you can imbue characters with life and reality without Mm -hmm. living the specifics of their existence but giving them the honor and respect of having specific lives that are fully fleshed out within their own world instead of just making them broad strokes. That's right, that's right. And there's so many... You know, we should point out there's so many great performances, so many great appearances. Like, you know, there, there's, 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 like you said, Emilio Estevez, there's uh-huh. C. Thomas Howell, there's Tom Cruise. Um, yeah, you know, real so early many- Tom Cruise there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and it, to- God, the watching it, it just blows me away anytime I watch a movie from the 80s or 90s with Patrick Swayze in it and yeah. just being like, wow, that's a star. Like, he's obviously yeah. stunning. Yeah, and he's yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, right. He's so talented. And yeah. I, w- I watched it being like, you walk, I, that movie ends and I'm like, wait, Patrick Swayze was in almost all of that movie, right? Because I'm thinking about him the entire time because yeah. he fills a room when he's in it, even if he's only on screen for a few scenes. But just Absolutely. like, I, it made me like, I felt myself mourning Patrick Swayze, even though, you know, he he died young, but we got so much great work from him. But watching yeah. it, like like you were saying, the same thing about like Raul Julia. We got so much work from this person, but it will yes, always feel yes. like a cheat if we get anything short of a century worth of them yeah. being on our lives because it's like, Absolutely. and you, you sort of, to recognize the instances of like exceptional connection or star power within something filled with so much of it is like, wow, yeah. you must really have it like that when you, even among this ensemble, just name after name after name after name, <laughs> you're still jumping out from the screen apart from everyone else. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. Tony, you smoke more than a pack today, and I'll skin you, you understand? Yeah. You carry more than one bundle of roofing at a time today, and me and Soda here will skin you. Soda. Understand? Shoes. Hey, say hi to Johnny. Okay. Hi. My, 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 like, concluding question for you, then, would be... Does it take much of a conscientious effort to stay golden in in what you do and and being in an industry that is so defined by like those common threads of like the hardest heartbreaks and then the highest highs that balance them out like is is the process is the pursuit of staying golden something that can come naturally to you or is that something where it's like I got to keep my eye on the prize and have perspective to maintain this because it's something that constantly wants to slip away yeah I, I mean I think that's like a testament to my parents um mm. I I there's a lot of things like I could be bitter about but uh uh I, there's a lot of things I am bitter about but, <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> okay good I want you to have your anger I want you to have your anger yeah. too yeah there's a lot of that but but um but I I want to believe in like that attainable gold goldness gold mm-hmm. you know yeah that 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 I can find it in my career and in my craft uh and I always try to surround myself with people who bring that that goldenness out of me mm-hmm. like I recognize anyone who doesn't, mm-hmm. who, who squashes that, and I try to eliminate them. Good. You know, those en- those entities, those individuals. Um, and I try to cultivate the relationships that foster that that sense of, of goldenness in me. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and yeah, uh, it, can, it can be a crazy industry, um, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. No, that's a that's a lie that gets upheld that only helps the people who make it hard. And yep, I that's refuse so true. to accept that's that. So well said. So well said. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's all about who who you surround yourself with. I'm like, 
uh, you know, a friend's, a friend's dad told us years ago, it's a good advice. Uh, and he said it in Spanish, he was like, in, in, in life, uh, you have to have your mafia, which is, you know, you have to, which are your friends and your associates. And, you know, mm -hmm. and the second piece of advice was hilarious because it was like, and then you have to be better than them. <laughs> <laughs> Which just, which just means that's, like a healthy That's a dose man of I can relate to right there. I like yeah. his attitude. <laughs> totally, totally. Like the healthy sense of competitiveness. You know, you don't have to, you can be competitive without putting anyone down. Oh, yeah. You know, we can all win. And I firmly believe in that. Yes. You know, I don't, I, I want to lift people up to your earlier point. Like I've had angels in my life who have mm -hmm. looked out for me. And, and and I hope that I can continue to be that for people around me as well. Like mm -hmm. I want I want to be a connective tissue. I do not want to be divisive. Mm -hmm. I have no interest in that. Life is too short. This is a collaborative art. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it 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 it's innately collaborative. There's no room for ego as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, those those things are very very much important to me. Like I love I love healthy competitiveness, but also I want to lift people up and I want to bring people along for the ride with me. Um, 100%. When you're a kid, everything's new. Dawn. Like the way you dig sunsets, Pony. That's gold. Keep it that way. It's a good way to be. I want you to ask Dally to look at one. I don't think he's ever seen a sunset. There's still lots of good in the world. Tell Dally I don't think he knows. Your buddy, Johnny. Well, thank you so much for all of the time that you have shared with me today, Raul. I really appreciate having you on and talking about this character and how just your your summer spent with Matt Dillon and the Outsiders. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time. You, it was very generous of you, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jordan. It's been fun talking to you, and and and, uh, and also uh, reliving and re-exploring my uh, love for this <laughs> character and this this film. Uh, truly, it, it was really meaningful. I'm I'm glad we got you to the to the edge of tears. That's a that's a, that's a threshold we're proud of here on the Feeling Team awesome, podcast. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Raul Castillo, folks. I will say I wasn't sure I would be able to make it through uh, this interview without fainting personally, but I did it. I did it, and I am proud of myself, and what a, a delightful, uh, just open, tender human being. So thank you, Raul, for coming on. We very much appreciate your time. The inspection is in theaters now, and very exciting news, it was just nominated for several Independent Spirit Awards. This really harkens back to the beginning of the show with one of our very first episodes, Isabel Furman. She came on when she was promoting The Novice, which was nominated, uh, her nomination for an Independent Spirit Award. Uh, Feeling Seen, the unofficial official podcast of Independent Spirit Award nominees. You're all invited, so come and join me. Um, and if you want to do a, a throwback to a classic Check out The Outsiders over the holiday weekend, and you can find it on HBO Max. Uh, what a murderer's row of stardom, but chief among them, of course, that's C. Thomas Howell. Simply no one broke out of that ensemble like C. Thomas Howell. And now, my one quick thing before I go, speaking of holiday weekend viewing, I, I have a friend back in the San Francisco Bay Area. Every year, her family does tea Hanksgiving, Thanksgiving, uh, watching Tom Hanks movies, 
uh, what a wonderful tradition. But you know what I think many more household traditions should be? And maybe it is. Maybe I'm just out of the loop. But many more people should make a Thanksgiving tradition of watching the excellent Thanksgiving film Adam's Family Values. The first Adam's Family starts off as like, kind of a, I think it's like kind of a Christmas movie. Like we hear like little jingling bells and like carolers or something. It ends up on Halloween because we have trick-or-treaters running to the door and then Lurch scares them away when he opens it. So it's a real holiday-centric, of course it's autumnal and wintry, it's the Adams Family. It's a real holiday-centric little franchise. And in Adams Family Values, we get um, one of the great Thanksgiving celebrations of all time put to screen uh, in the form of Wednesday Adams, spoiler guys, Wednesday Adams has become uh, exiled at her summer camp and she decides to overthrow the ruling class, uh, one of which is camp counselor, ultra toxic positivity, Christine Baranski. We stand. Uh, Wednesday Adams decides she's going to get back at these hyper chipper, hyper perky campers and counselors. And she is going to turn the annual Thanksgiving pageant into a havoc wreaking barn burning melee in which the reenactment of the first Thanksgiving is presented in a truer fashion where the indigenous people uh, overwhelm and destroy their white colonizers. Uh, I, I don't remember. I think it might be Christine Baranski who ends up on a spit being turned uh, with an apple in her mouth by a cam counselor. Pugsley is the turkey and Wednesday Adams is leading the revolution. So we all I think we, I can say safely we all love the Adams family because we should. And if you don't unsubscribe, uh, Adams Family Values manages to be one of those rare precious sequels that punches above the weight even of the original what an excellent movie in addition to being a thanksgiving special you also get one of the all-time great movie baddies who you don't love to hate you just love to love debbie jelinski as played by joan cusack um this movie it's all hits no skips uh, what a nice thing, family friendly, to have on in the background for everyone enjoy either while you're cooking or when you're all tucked in to the couches afterwards and watching something together. Have a very nice Thanksgiving with the Adams family and their values and their um, small presented as a <laughs> genderless baby. Is it a boy? Is it a girl? It's an Adams. Um, so, yeah, check it out. The Adams family values. And that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jor Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. <laughs> I just heard Wednesday's voice in my head going, wait. We cannot break bread with you. (laughs) MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.